Thank you, Sophie and everybody else, David and Sarah and Kristen and uh, Zach and Jacob. It's good to have you guys with us today. We've been blessed with Jacob for a while now. He's found his way home from Greenville. Is that where it is? You're in Greenville, right? You're at Pembroke. Okay. What did you do with Jacob? Well, um, what do the following novels and movies have in common? Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Chronicles of Narnia, The Matrix, and the more recent Twilight series, which is a much, as much about romance as it is vampires, I understand. How many of you, this is so big that they've got a release Thursday night slash Friday morning at midnight. How many of you know someone going to the Twilight? Uh, you know what? I knew this would be the case. There were like three or four in the first service. I knew it would be many more in the second service who would know someone going to the Twilight. See, I didn't ask if you're going to the to the movie at midnight, or we would have had fewer hands, uh, even though the number's probably about equal. Everybody who raised their hand is going. What do these movies have in common and books have in common? They're all stories that pursue an explanation for the spiritual curiosity that is within us all. Uh, they all deal with, with evil forces, good and evil forces that lie beyond the realm of the observable universe and, and sometimes just beyond the realm of what we can see. I mean, not many decades ago, uh, the notion of, of a spirit world would have been scoffed at by scientists and, and, and other uh, scholars. But recently, such notions are far more in vogue and, and they're often found in works of fiction. And the most recent uh, issue of Touchstone magazine, really awesome magazine, Catholic magazine, but there are a lot of uh, conservative evangelical guys that write in there. Uh, John Granger offers this explanation for the modern day fascination with the supernatural. Quote, when God is driven to the periphery of the public square, the human spiritual capacity longs for exercise, and it often finds it in the suspension of disbelief and activity of the imagination that are available in novels and books. The books and films that satisfy this spiritual longing most profoundly are the ones that have <clears throat> religious content of some kind, sometimes any kind. Close quote. In other words, the human soul and mind knows that there is more to our existence than what can be seen. I mean, many would deny it, but the fascination with the supernatural would tend to confirm our suspicion that there is good and evil just barely beyond our senses. Today's text gives us a look into that supernatural world, though I, though I have to tell you that it, it is a hazy and unclear view that we're given. As we read today's text, you may or may not be aware that there are a lot of different interpretations. In fact, uh, about what is written here. In fact, you're going to be surprised in a few minutes when I tell you just exactly how many interpretations there are. And we absolutely will not come to a firm conclusion today about what is being stated. I'm going to give you my best uh, guess as, as, as to what the text is saying, but frankly, it's someone else's best guess for what the text is saying. Uh, and I would recommend that if you wish to come to a firm conclusion on this and tell everybody, I've got it. You need to pray and study a whole lot before you do that and then prepare for those who know a lot about Scripture to snicker. And Okay, well, okay, so you've got it. Please tell us what it is. Uh, at least two people that I studied, I, I, I read a lot of different commentaries, and at least two of the commentators quoted uh, Martin Luther, who said this about First Peter three eighteen to 22. A wonderful text this is. 
and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. Amen. I, I got to tell you, if we were not preaching through First Peter, there ain't no way you would ever hear me talk about this. I would never choose to talk about it. It's one of the great values of going through a book because you're forced to talk about stuff and think about stuff that you wouldn't ordinarily. We're going to uh, read our text today, First Peter three eighteen to 22. I'd hope to go through chapter 4, verse 6, but there's just too much uh, that's in the passage that we're going to read as it is. So as is our custom, would you please stand as we read God's word together? I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, we just want to ask you to open our hearts and minds as we consider this difficult text. And Lord, even though there's going to be a lot of time trying to make sense of it, I'm certain there is much that you have for us. And so I would pray that our hearts would indeed be open and that we would receive exactly what it is you want us to and that it would make a difference in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and be seated. You know, we could spend several months on the five verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. I mean, and obviously we're not going to cover all that is important here today. And while a satisfactory explanation will in all probability not be possible for a text that has been debated almost since it was written nearly 2,000 years ago, uh, there is a lot that we can get, and it's helpful if we'll consider a couple of principles before we dive into this that will help us make a little bit of sense of, to these difficult verses, of these difficult verses. First, we need to recognize that these verses were written in the shadow of suffering. In fact, just about anything that's written in First Peter is written in the shadow of suffering. We, we return to this theme over and over in Scripture, and you're going to see it. You're going to see how the understanding that he's talking about suffering here helps us make a little bit of sense of exactly what is being said. Purity and joy are expected in the hearts of Christ followers even when they are suffering, especially suffering that is caused by sharing one's faith. God doesn't give us a break and say, well, because you're suffering, you can mope and you can feel miserable and you can and, and you can make allowances for yourself. No, he says, live purely and have joy in the midst of that. You'll see how much understanding that helps our interpretation in this particular passage. There's a second principle, though, that we need to keep in, in mind, and it's what theologians would call the, the principle of perspicuity which simply means, it's a big word, but it simply means that we take something that is difficult and interpret it in the light of that which is clearer about that topic. If you've got a real difficult passage like the one that we read a while ago, baptism now saves you. And then you've got a whole lot else in Scripture that is much clearer on that particular topic. What are you going to go with? 
Well, if you're a Mormon, you go with a more difficult passage. That's why they say in 1 Corinthians 15, where uh, Paul said, talked about people being baptized for the dead. And they said, well, okay, well then, let's build a doctrine around that. And then we'll make all the other stuff about baptism fit. And that means that we could be baptized for great-great-great-grandpa and get him out of hell. Well, actually, Mormons, I guess, don't really believe in hell as we do. But we'll get him into the big heaven anyway if, we, if we're baptized for him. So let's do that. Well, that's not the way you're supposed to, you're supposed to do it the other way. This is a, a difficult passage, and so we're going to look at what else Scripture says about it. Solid biblical exegesis will always attempt to interpret a difficult text by what the whole of Scripture has to say about that topic. So having established these two principles, we're left with two questions about our text. First, Who were the spirits in prison to whom Jesus preached? And when did he preach to them? Second, what does Peter mean when he says that we're saved by baptism? I mean, evangelicals believe that baptism is an indication that we are saved, but that you're not saved by doing good works. And a lot of people make baptism a good work. So what's going on here? Well, we'll see. Let's jump in to the text. Verse 18 is linked to the passage before it, and, and, and that section is about, surprise, surprise, suffering. Uh, verse 17 will suffice for us to make the connection. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then immediately he says, for Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, let's not miss this. I mean, we're, we're about to jump into to a really difficult and text and try to understand what he's saying about preaching to the spirits in prison. But let's not miss this crucial verse in the New Testament about Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus died. He was the righteous one and he died for the sins of the unrighteous. And Peter's making a point here. He's saying in essence, and I'm sure they're picking up, you're suffering? Well, guess what? Christ suffered also. And... It's not that he just suffered at the hands of the evil men who crucified him and who who had him crucified, who, who went to Pilate and said, you've got to put this guy to death. It's not just those that... It was not just their hands at whom Jesus suffered. It was because of your sin that he suffered. Jesus died the righteous for the unrighteous. If there's anything they knew at this point, it was that all are sinners. And they were all unrighteous. And Jesus had died in their place. So, when you suffer, remember that Christ also suffered. And, that, and, and, and I'm putting it kind of negatively, but there's so much positive in all of what Peter says here. Awesome verse in, in, in the first couple of verses in, in chapter 4 that we'll be looking at next week about what suffering does for us. And it certainly brings us into identity with Jesus. And, and that's what Peter was saying. So, Jesus suffered, we suffer That's it, right? That's good enough. Is that the end of the story? No, it's not the end of the story. Now, it may feel that way when you're going through a difficult time in your life, when you're, and some of you are possibly going through the most difficult time of your entire life. I've been there the last couple of years. I've been there. I know what it's like. And I know that it feels like sometimes that's it. There is no, there is no bright sky in my future. The light at the end of the tunnel is surely a train. It's not going to get any better. One of the reasons that we can be so greatly discouraged 
in the midst of suffering is that there is more going on in our lives than meets the eye. In addition to our pain, our loss, or the persecution that is leveled against us, and if you've got family members that mock you for your for your decision to follow Jesus, or dorm uh, sweet mates, or whatever, people at work, then you're suffering some of the very persecution that these guys suffered. And, and even if you're at that level, there's more going on than just somebody making fun of you, or more going on than sickness sometimes, or 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 losing your job sometimes there's there, there's activity that is going on just beyond what we can we can say we can see satan unseen forces led by satan are piling on at every opportunity remember what it was like guys when you had the football at the bottom of the pile you know when you were like 8 years old and they just came running and then you saw that really big guy coming running and you're thinking no god please <laughs> Oh, well, that's what Satan does. I mean, he just piles on. He, Whenever he's got us down, he's going to try to give it to us even more. He desires your destruction. And if he can discourage you to the point that you're out of the game, well, then he's won, hasn't he? If he can put you on the sidelines, he's won, at least for the time being. Well, Peter steps in with a very encouraging word at this point. Jesus has defeated the enemy. Verse 18 says that he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Essentially what Peter was saying here, he's talking about not only Jesus' death, but also his resurrection. That's what he means when he says he was made alive in the spirit. Um, He was saying that Satan thought he had won the battle when he orchestrated Jesus' death. But three days later, when Jesus was raised from the dead, the enemy was defeated. Now, you may not see the resurrection in verse 18, but but that's what is meant when it says that Jesus was being made alive, or Jesus was made alive in the Spirit. Peter is not saying that Jesus' resurrection is the spiritual one only, that his body really didn't rise, but just his spirit did. He was basically saying the limitations that Jesus willingly took upon himself when he emptied himself in Philippians 2 and put aside, not that he gave up his divinity, but he put aside some of the privileges of his deity, of of being God, Jesus, God, in when he became God in the flesh. And he said, I'm no longer going to have access to some of these privileges that I've had before. Well, they're done now. When he was made alive in the spirit, he can do anything that he did before if then being made alive in the spirit refers to jesus resurrection as most conservative scholars believe jesus didn't preach to the spirits in verse 19 between his death and resurrection but rather after his resurrection but i'm getting a little bit ahead of myself there are three main views uh, about what is meant in verse 19, although with the other views and variations on the views, there are somewhere just around 200 views uh, about what these verses mean. I think it's like 180 that are accepted as, you know, as possible views about these verses. I, I doubt that what I will say today will satisfy all of you, if any of you fully, because there are just too many problems, even with the best views about what exactly is being meant here. There's a bigger, there's a bigger issue at stake, and that is, What's going on, not only with what we can see, but also in the spirit world and how it relates to our suffering and victory and justice and all of that. And we'll talk about it as we go. But to just try to make sense of this, pretty 
uh, difficult. I, I want to begin with the most unlikely view and move to the one that I agree with the most. But, you know, I don't know that I'll ever be able to say, well, with pretty de- high degree of certainty, this is exactly what I believe about this. The first view is this, that Jesus was made alive in the Spirit after his death and during the time between his death and, and, and his resurrection, he preached to the spirits in hell and offered them a second chance for salvation. And in light of Scripture as a whole, this view just absolutely cannot be accepted. There's no evidence anywhere in Scripture for a, a second chance after people die. Hebrews 9.27, I believe it is, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. I mean, we don't get a second chance. This is it. If we don't trust Jesus here, He's not going to come and preach to us later and offer us another chance. The, the, the only way that we can conclude this view to be true is if we really, really, really want it to be true. And, and, and why wouldn't we? I don't want people to spend eternity in hell. I don't want that. So I can see why this is attractive, but you just can't find it in Scripture. You can't find evidence to support it in Scripture. Now, there's a variation of this view that says that that um, Jesus went to the spirits of the Old Testament saints, those who had trusted God, and that's the way they were saved. The, the means of our salvation is the same as it was in the Old Testament. Abraham believed God. He believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. The object of our faith is different, though. We understand Jesus died for us. We, we get all of that. And so based on that, then we can say then we can place our trust in what Christ did on the cross as payment for our sins and be saved. The Old Testament saints believed God's promises, and they were saved. Now this view says that Jesus went and he preached to them and and then took them to heaven so that they understood the gospel fully. Uh, I don't think that he preached to the spirits between his death and resurrection. So that's one little problem with that view. It's not likely what Jesus was saying, so we'll plow on. The second view, which is much more credible than the first and is held by Wayne Grudem, who I respect very highly and was held by Augustine, is that the spirit of Christ preached through Noah and was rejected by those who heard, thus incurring God's judgment. They they incurred God's judgment when they rejected the, the message. I mean, this view is rather plausible. Especially in light of 1 Peter 1.11, where we were told, if you'll remember, back the first Sunday we talked about this, that, that the Spirit of Christ preached through the prophets when they were predicting the suffering and the glory, subsequent glories of Christ. So people make that connection and they say, well, that's what he means here. It means that, that Noah, Jesus was actually preaching through Noah. Well, one of the primary problems with this view in light of the common understanding that Jesus preaching to the spirits occurred after his resurrection, or was it we believe that he preached to the spirits after his resurrection? And so even if you believe that he preached between his death and resurrection, you'd have to say, well, no, that's not what he's referring to. Another um, problem is that the spirits to whom Jesus preached were almost certainly angelic beings, not human beings. The only place in the New Testament where humans were referred to as, as spirits is in Hebrews 12.23. They're referred to as spirits in, in other writings of the first century. But in, in the New Testament, it's, it's supernatural beings that are named as spirits over 20 times in the New Testament. So it's highly unlikely that Peter intended to say that the spirit of Jesus preached through Noah, although it's possible. 
And then there are things that, that like I say, there are people that, that believe that to be, be true. So, everybody awake? You need some coffee? Well, you can't go get any. We've, we've had complaints about people going to get coffee in the middle of the preaching. So I'm taking notes, and the next time I see anybody going to get coffee in the middle of preaching, I'm going to call you out, and be, and then you'll probably punch me out after the service. But well, it is true that the time of Noah plays a role in in the most likely meaning of this difficult text, as evidenced by the connection that Peter makes here. The third primary view of this text is that the spirits in prison were demons who had cohabited with women in Noah's time, as described in the first two verses of Genesis 6. I'd love to put those on the, on the screen, but I don't have time. I mean, it's just, I, I'm, I'm going to really be racing the clock as it is. But you remember it says that the sons of God went into the daughters of men, and, and, and the implication is that they had sexual relations with these women. This conclusion that these sons of God in Genesis 6, 1 and 2 were demons who had been imprisoned by God was the standard interpretation in Peter's day. It's what everybody uh, believed. And that, along with 2 Peter 2, 4 and 5, and then Jude 6, which quotes extensively the non-canonical book of First Enoch, lead most to think that Genesis 6 refers to the demons who had relations with women. Now... How did this happen? Did these demons take on human form or did they inhabit humans who willingly open themselves up to these demons? It doesn't really say. We don't know that for sure. We don't know how that happened. But if that's indeed what did happen, it's clear that their decision to have relations with these women doomed them to immediate spiritual imprisonment by God in the spirit world. I mean, there are plenty of Satan's demons loose today, but not these guys. It doesn't mean that immediately once they did it, but at the flood, at the time of Noah, the time of the flood in Noah's day, most likely God at that point said, okay, you've crossed the line. Now, they didn't have any chance of, of repenting and, and being reconnected uh, with the Lord, but they had been given freedom to roam the earth and the heavens and the earth, But there were boundaries placed on them, and they stepped across the boundaries. And so God imprisoned them. So if this is true, and if Jesus preached to the demons after his resurrection, what was his purpose? His proclamation was one of triumph. It was basically saying, you're doomed, the right has prevailed. Now we see it today in our songs, you know, at... At ball games, we will rock you and we are the champions of the world and all that stuff. That spirit rises up within us because blue devils ought to be doomed. Can I get an amen on that? Well, okay, wolf pack then, if not Duke. Ah. <laughs> the punch is coming after the surface. I can feel it already. No, but we have that sense, not, of course, about athletics, but we want, we want to see it. Did you see, who saw the movie Taken? Have you ever been so glad to see so many people die in such a short period of time? I mean, I'm saying, kill them, kill them, and hurt them while you kill them, you know? You're thinking, there are six guys, he's not going to be able to torture them, it's going to go too fast, I'm sorry about, I'm sad about this. I mean, and and that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing for us to be like that. But you know, it does rise up within us. And 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 what Jesus did 
ought to help us. It corresponds to our cry for justice. But you see, it's He's the one that ought to be putting fingers in people's faces because when we do it, there's too much of us and He does it with perfection. He does it from the right way. And see, our problem is that we want to mete out justice. And if we'll just leave the justice to Him, it'll be far better done. And you know what happens in First Peter? It's not specifically stated, but we've already run into it twice. He's saying that people will see your willingness to trust your heart to the one who judges rightly, and they will be attracted to Jesus. Now, it's not specifically stated, but the implication is there. That we witness well when we receive suffering at the hands of those who hate us and who hate God. And many times when they observe the way that we respond to that, And it's true about how we respond to any kind of suffering, not just persecution. But when they see how we respond to that, then they're attracted. You know, when we suffer at the hands of evil men and women, even when they're directed by demons, we can be assured that God will rule in righteousness in the end. He rules already. Although it doesn't seem like it, one day it will be clear in everybody's mind who was right, who was wrong. And the righteousness, justice will prevail. So, Peter's point is that we can endure suffering just as Jesus did, knowing that it's not the final word in a world that appears oftentimes to be out of control. Well, Peter moves quickly from one controversial subject to another. It's like he flows effortlessly. I mean, it flows effortlessly from his pen. Okay, that's one controversy. Here's another. Um, look at, and he uses the same illustration, Old Testament illustration of Noah to make his point. Look at verses 20 to 22. Because they, the spirits, formerly did not obey when God's patience waited for humans to repent, not these spirits, in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. It's significant that that Peter says there were eight people in the ark. Apparently he didn't get the memo that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are myth. He didn't know that. He said there were eight people in that boat. That's all. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Resurrection is, is, is huge. Death and resurrection of Jesus are huge in this passage. It's like an inclusio, in what we call an inclusio in scripture. In this paragraph, it begins with his resurrection, it ends with his resurrection. And after his resurrection, he is gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, by the way, if you want to throw in verse 6 of chapter 4, which we will get to next week, it's, it doesn't mean what you think it means about, let me read it so I don't, uh, Uh, Okay, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What he's saying simply is that people, the gospel was preached to those who believed it and have now died, and now they're living in the spirit. Um, That's, don't connect chapter 4 verse 6 with this 
with this before. But but God, Jesus has gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So here's the picture in Noah's day. Men were exceedingly wicked. Men and women were exceedingly w- wicked. And the tendency toward the flesh that we all have was exacerbated greatly by the introduction of demons into the mainstream of humanity. Didn't happen before, hasn't happened since. They, they have influence like crazy. But they were walking and cohabiting with women in that day. Noah was told to build an ark, which naturally took him and his sons many years to build. Now, there are non-canonical books that tell us that Noah suffered a great deal of persecution and ridicule for that. But we didn't need that. We didn't need that. I mean, you, you just assume that. Noah, what are you doing? Building a boat. Why? God told me to. God told you to build a boat here in the middle of the country? I mean, we're a long way from water. Yeah, it's going to rain. going to flood. Rain? What's rain? What are you talking about? Water from the sky. You're crazy. You're absolutely nuts. In the end... Only Noah, his wife, his sons and his sons' wives were passengers on the ark. Even though God waited patiently for a long time before bringing the flood, giving men and women plenty of time, plenty of years to repent of their sins, the floodwaters of judgment actually carried Noah's family to safety. Well, they were carried to safety in the ark, but the waters posed no threat to the passengers of the ark. Verse 21 is awfully confusing to some and it seems cl- crystal clear to others. Well, even if it seems crystal clear to some, it, it, it's not to almost everyone else. I mean, w- w- once again, we're faced with a difficult text and we have to decide whether to interpret the rest of what is said in the New Testament about baptism by this text or the other way around. Let's go with the other way around. Let's try to understand this difficult verse in light of all that the New Testament says concerning baptism. We find overwhelming evidence in the New Testament that the act of baptism alone does not save a person. I have a friend. I had a friend when I was in high school. We were pretty wicked together. Um, And I talked to my friend not long after I became a Christian. And I said, hey, do you know where you're going after you die? And he said... Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to heaven. Uh, I'm a Catholic. I've been baptized. I said, yeah, but look, you, you still go to hell if you don't trust Jesus. Now, I wouldn't witness that way this, this day, but I did in those early years. Uh, I don't know how effective it was. Probably not very. Uh, but because he reacted very strongly. He said, hey, don't say that. Don't say that. I'm all right with God. I'm all right with God. He thought because he had had... His parents had made the decision to have a few drops of water sprinkled on his head when he was a baby that he was okay with God. How can you possibly think that? Listen, even if you go much further and say, well, I was baptized when I was eight years old uh, and I joined the church, so I'm good with God. Well, you, you made the decision. Well, that's fine. Why did you make the decision? If you made the decision because you said, I... I think that's what I'm supposed to do in order to be accepted by God. Isn't that a work? And Scripture makes it clear, we're not saved by our good works. 
Baptism, the act of baptism alone will not save us. However, the, the act of baptism with tr- faith and trust in Jesus Christ is crucial in our spiritual lives. Well, Peter was saying a couple things here. The first, first thing he's saying is, the first point he's making is that in Noah's generation, out of the entire world, only eight people were ultimately saved by God. All others were judged because of their wickedness. Now that means something to Peter. That meant something to Peter's readers. I, I don't know about you. I recognize that Christians are in a minority in, in, in America as well as the rest of the world. But it doesn't feel like it to me. I mean, I spend most of my time with you. I spend most of my time with people who believe the same way that I believe. And if I didn't have any understanding of the world outside beyond my world, I think we're in the majority. I think, why wouldn't you be a Christian? And and in fact, a lot of people feel comfortable trusting Christ in our country because it's cool to be a Christian. So many people are. And what a difference he's made in this person's life and that person's life. So I think it'd be cool for me to trust Jesus. What if, though, what if, though, everywhere we turn, people looked at us and treated us as if we were absolutely crazy? I mean, we would begin to feel like the elect exiles that Peter has said to these people that they were. You're elected, you're chosen by God, you're very special, but you've got to know you're exiles. You're not living in your home. This place is not your home. And they said, tell me, tell me, the way we're treated. These people were in a godless society that was increasingly hostile to those who refused to acknowledge anyone as Lord besides Jesus. I don't know if that day will ever come here. I don't know if it will ever come in the West. But, you know, the way things move at warp speed these days, if it does start moving that way, it could come very quickly. I don't think it's right around the corner. I don't. I don't know if I'll ever see it in my lifetime. Some of you may. But it could. It could come quickly. And if it did, we would understand. What if What if the size of our church this morning were about one-tenth of the crowd that's in here? Not, not both services, just one-tenth of this group. And the reason that it was so small is because we were being persecuted for our faith. And there was a big price to pay for meeting together as followers of Jesus Christ. You know what? If that were the case, it would mean something to us that out of the entire world, eight people got on that ark and were carried through judgment. Just as Noah's family was brought safely through the waters in the ark, so you, Peter said, will be brought safely to God through belief in Jesus' death and resurrection. But then there's verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then verse 22 goes on to remind us that Jesus had defeated defeated all the powers of darkness, both in the seen and the unseen worlds. What does it mean that, that baptism corresponds to this? He's not saying that baptism is like the floodwaters, but it's like the ark that carried Noah's family to safety. But then he plainly says, now baptism saves you. If this is all that he had written, then we would have to say, well, okay, I guess it does. Better get baptized. And, and better do it again, you know, just in case. It, 
But we would we would conclude that the act of baptism saves us, and and the act of baptism almost certainly was in in the first century by immersion. They went all the way under and came up. Almost almost certainly it was that way. And look, if you if you come from a a background where you were baptized as a baby, I, when I referred to the Catholics a while ago, you may be Presbyterian, Methodist, some other. Uh, a denomination that practices infant baptism, Episcopal, that's fine. I, I'm not saying that your baptism is invalid. That's not what I'm saying. If you want to join our church and you've never been baptized, it has to be by immersion. If you come from a, 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 a an understanding where infant baptism is the mode of baptism and it corresponds to circumcision in the Old Testament as a sign of God's covenant, then we're, we're okay with that. But if you have never been baptized, you need to understand the importance of what is being said in this passage. You need to understand that if you were baptized as, a, as, a, as an infant, that's not what saves you. Peter goes on very quickly to say that it's not the act of baptism itself which removes dirt from the body that makes us clean, but that being baptized tells the world that we have given our hearts to God through Jesus on the basis of His death and resurrection. And baptism indicates that one has a clean conscience before God. He's repented of his sins and has asked forgiveness of those sins based on the death of the righteous one, Jesus, who died in the place of the unrighteous. And furthermore, baptism indicates that one has committed his or her life to following the resurrected Savior in this world no matter what the consequences are. Now that explanation may or may not satisfy you. You're going to discuss it more in home groups this week. This is a difficult verse, no doubt. And even if we are able to theologically put baptism in its place as a symbol of something that has happened in our hearts, and it is only, it is, it, it is meaningless apart from faith in your heart, belief in your heart that Jesus died for you, even if you could put it in its place there, it would be very wrong to miss the importance of the act of baptism that is being stated here and of following Jesus through the waters of baptism. If I were to ask you a question, can a person be saved without being baptized? Almost all of you would say, well, of course, of course. Baptism is, is an act of obedience that occurs after salvation. And it's just a, it's a way of saying to the world that I belong to Jesus, just like a wedding ring says, I belong to him or her. It's a symbol. And I would probably give a similar answer. Perhaps a better answer to the question of can a person who has not been baptized be saved would be, why? Why would a person trust Jesus in his or her heart and not be baptized? It was unthinkable in the first century that you could belong to Jesus and not tell the world that you do through baptism. It makes no sense at all. We often encourage people not to be baptized immediately because it has become such a ritual in our, our day. It's so a, a meaningless ritual that, that people just do. It's just like, that's what I did when I was eight years old. I went forward in a Baptist church in a revival because I knew all my friends were going under on Sunday night. And I wanted to go under when they went under. You know, and the pastor said, why have you come? Which I thought was a crazy question. I, I, you know, I came to be baptized and join the church. He said, well, do you know Jesus died for you? I said, well, no. He said, well, he did. Would you like to pray and receive him? I said, sure. And it happened just like that, that quickly. And I'm not blaming him. I'm just telling you, I didn't, I didn't have any idea what I was doing. 
But I got wet Sunday night with my friends. Wasn't saved, but I was baptized. And so it's understandable why we say, let's just wait a little bit. Let's wait a little bit before a person is baptized. But but you know what? Scripture doesn't allow for that. It just says, if you're going to follow Jesus, be baptized. And if you've never been baptized, you and I need to talk soon. We need to talk soon. This is important. If Jesus is important to you, then following Him in baptism needs to be important to you. Remember, it's not that that saves, but I'm telling you. Scripture doesn't know anything about a person who has been saved and has not been baptized. So let's talk about it. If you've never been baptized, and we're going to crank it up soon. I had two people talk to me after the first service. So when should we do it? I said, next week. He said, that's a little soon, isn't it? Not to, you know, to let people know. What? Do, look, let's get it done. We need to do this. This is important. It's important to your spiritual life. And, and by the way, if we lived in a day of significant persecution like Peter's readers did, people would understand the significance of what they're doing before they ever trusted Christ. And when you witness to somebody, you need to tell them, say, look, don't play around with this. This is not something that you just go through the motions. If you're serious about this, then do it. And, and by the way, let's go as quickly as possible. You need to be baptized. And if you're thinking, ah, God, I mean, I've been going to church all these years. I'm a, get over that. Come on. Is this real or not? You know what? It may not be real to you. Nobody else. It may be that nobody here knows about your baptism, your state, whether you've been baptized or not. But they know in the spirit world and they care. There's more, and that's part of this whole passage. There's more than meets the eye going on. Well, how are we going to apply all of this? I mean, should we seek to go out and be persecuted? So, Of course not. But we can't ask God to give us a clear picture in our hearts and minds as to the reality that exists both in this world and in the unseen world. We can ask Him to impress upon us the seriousness of His call on our lives and thus how we should live. Ask Him to live through us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, so that Jesus can be seen in our lives. As I've already stated, if you've not been baptized, please talk to me today. You need to do something about this major oversight in your spiritual life may not be that big of a deal to you, but it's a big deal. And it needs to be a big deal to you. So, let's just stop right here and go to the Lord. Would you please bow your heads? What we see in this life is not all there is. We need to stop living as if the only thing that matters to us is within two feet in front of our faces. If God is real and He has communicated to us through His Word, then we need to take His Word seriously. And we need to follow Him with all of our hearts, no matter the consequences. This life is not all there is. What we see is not all there is. And when the rain begins, we need to be in the ark. We need to be found in Jesus. 
Father, we commit ourselves, our hearts, our whole lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand for the benediction?